0: Hi, this is Russell. Welcome to A Life in Music, the podcast dedicated to performers who want to be their very best. I've spent my life working in an industry I love, professionally since the age of eight years old. I love what I do, and I'm still as passionate today as I have ever been. This industry is full of ups and downs, but it's still a wonderful industry, and A Life in Music is here to support performers, with interviews from creatives to artists, behind-the-scenes insights, tips and tricks, and as much support as I can give to help you become the very best you can be. Now, I've something to ask you. There are three ways in which you can help me reach more people. This not only benefits others, but also gives me the opportunity of getting great content to you. The more listeners I have, the more weight this platform has, and this in turn gives me my opportunities of getting even more great interviews and great content to you. Now, firstly, please go to my website at www.lifeinmusic.com and sign up to the newsletter. This means you'll be the first to hear about new content on the site and new podcasts as they become available. There's also some exclusive benefits that come from time to time secondly please review the podcast this is incredibly important to me it takes a couple of minutes and if you go onto the website you'll find some very simple instructions please leave me a great review this is the best opportunity for me to get further exposure from itunes and thirdly just spread the word tell people about the podcast and the website and get them to have a listen and finally thank you so much for listening and thank you for your support we have listeners from all over the world this podcast is for you and i do it for no monetary benefit whatsoever this is my way of sharing my experiences and wisdom from a life in music and now on to today's show Welcome to another episode of A Life in Music with Russell Scott. Well, on today's show, I've got a very special guest. Born and raised in LA, but now living in London. This is the son of Robert B. Sherman, one half of the Sherman Brothers, those amazing songwriters of stage and screen with that enormous uh, library of music from the Disney era. And I'm very, very excited to welcome my very special guest today to talk about his life, A Life in Music his family life and talking about his career as a composer and of course looking after his father's legacy. Please welcome Robert J. Sherman. So good morning Robbie how are you? I'm doing great beautiful day sunny
1: uh, with with a little haze in the in the distance uh looks a little bit like Los
0: Angeles where I'm from. And you're 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 sitting in your apartment in London at the moment I mean I'm I'm in North London it is it is a beautiful autumnal day almost approaching. I might be able I might be able to
1: see you because I'm actually looking directly toward North London. Although I, I'm not sure, I'm not exactly sure which, uh, which part of North London you're in, but I, I, I think I see uh, sort of toward the Frognell Hill uh, <laughs> sort of on, on the way to, uh, yeah, it, uh, that, I think that's sort of Swiss cottage area.
0: Okay. Very good. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for, for coming on uh show today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, humbled to have you on the show and, and, uh, it's, it, it's, it's really exciting for me to, to talk to you. Um, I just wanted let, let's, I'd like to start really at the very beginning. It's a, a very good place to start and uh, give me a little bit of history as to, uh, sort of your, your entry into the world of, uh, of the wonderful world of music and the world, wonderful world of the Sherman brothers.
1: You know, it's funny that you said that you used that song to begin with and, and, uh, uh, I'll tell you why because I just Facebook friend Will Hammerstein, and I have the same feeling about the son's grand. Well, he's in, in his case a grandson of of the of the Hammer's of the Hammerstein. He's also Facebook friends with Andy Hammerstein, and uh, and it just I'm in awe of these people who are wonderful people in many ways. I'm sure you know and, and from what I know about them online, but um, but of course the overshadowing thing, of course, is the famous grandfather. Oscar Hammerstein II and that whole legendary family. So to be in awe of my presence, I'm, I'm very flattered. But but the truth is that the credit has to go to my my progenitors more likely than me. So I guess to, so. Leading into your to your question, how did I get started in songwriting? Well, I've always I've always um, I've always been interested in songwriting. In fact, my earliest memory was. Um, and literally my earliest memory. I was thinking about this just because I've said this before and I wanted to see if, is that really true? Is that really my earliest memory? And I thought about other memories I had from early childhood. And truly this is my earliest memory: is that I wanted to be a songwriter, which is a strange thing to call an earliest memory.
0: Um, how, how, old were you it's true. how old were you when you first thought that?
1: Three years old. I was two, two and a half, three years old. My father came home with an acetate, record of Snoopy Come Home, which was an animated Snoopy movie, you may remember it had songs like No Dogs Allowed and, and, uh, and, and uh, Best of Buddies and these wonderful songs, Snoopy Come Home title song. And my dad came home with this and I was the youngest of four children, much younger than my siblings. And my dad put on the record and we listened to what was going to be the, the elements of the soundtrack of, of this movie. And my grandfather who was a Tin Pan Alley songwriter, my dad and uncle, of course, the famous Sherman brothers. My dad was there, not my uncle, but uh, and we were sitting there and I was dancing around the floor and I was as much a part of the scene. And I remember thinking that this is my place, a little bit like Simba must have felt with the Lion King, you know, you know, in, in the early parts of the, of the early parts of that movie or the show. I just sort of felt this is my mountain and and, and one day I will inherit this and and uh, and of course, it was a lot of work in between then and now, but um, that's where we are.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you've got you've come from a, a long line of of musicians and uh, creators and composers, and it, that must have been quite quite something, and quite a lot of pressure for you, I suppose, coming into the world and, and as a child and seeing your your dad and your uncle, you know, thriving in the in the wonderful world of Disney.
1: A lot more than I realized, uh, I, I never felt that pressure from my dad, in great part because he was sympathetic to it. You have to remember, although he's not as well-known these days, my grandfather was a Tin Pan Alley songwriter and was writing, what they didn't have the top 10 or even the you know, Billboard top 100 or anything like that in those days, but they did have best-selling pieces of sheet music or, or, or uh, records, you know, the old 78s. And my grandfather was writing one of the top ten songwriters of the 1930s in America. He wrote songs like You Gotta Be a Football Hero and and No No A Thousand Times No, and um, uh kind of Million A Million Times. He worked for Bing Crosby, Marie Chevalier, Billy Holiday, Rudy Valley. all these this cavalcade of singers that everybody's heard of. And um, um I don't know if I mentioned Sinatra. There there is a uh, you know he he wrote for all these folks. So when my dad started in the business, he understood what it was to have the the, the towering figure and the comparisons and all that. and and w- with you know got you know sort of had the slightest, got the slights and all those things from that as well. and um, which is the downside of being sort of in a legacy family, I guess. but uh, because there's no way you could ever live up to that to that kind of legacy, at least early on. And uh, so he was very sympathetic and really couldn't have been a more benevolent kind of a person to have as as a role model.
0: Yeah. And t- so, so tell me, just to put every, just want to sort of get an idea of where all this, where all where sort of the timeline is, really. So you, uh, when, when you were born, at what point, where, where were your, where was your father and your uncle and your family at that point in their careers?
1: Well, this is the thing. And this is why that early memory of Snoopy come home is so significant. My father and uncle, I was born in 1968 and my father and uncle were the top songwriters in Hollywood. Now that that's a very small niche. You know, when you think of like the, when you think of most people in my father's generation of songwriters, either you think of pop songwriters or more likely you think of Broadway songwriters or West end songwriters, like, like a Lionel Bart or somebody, but the truth or Stephen Sondheim, that's, uh, or or uh, Jerry Herman, or you know the, that that generation uh, Bach and Parnick, you uh, you don't think of my you don't think of my you know my father and uncle were Hollywood. They were writing. They were they were the only songwriters who had a staff position in Hollywood writing songs because they weren't making Hollywood musicals, original Hollywood musicals anymore. Uh, the, the original last Hollywood. Uh, occasionally, you get the odd producer, an AJ, an A a, uh, arthur jacobs um for example who did uh um, oh gosh what was it called uh, uh um, about the about the animals uh talk to the animals uh, uh, and Ar- uh, arthur jacobs who did uh, doctor Doolittle no <laughs> doctor and and uh goodbye mr chips and right. and eventually he did two films with my dad is an uncle as well um but they were unusual. It was it was an unusual thing. If they were going to do a musical, it was going to be something that was already tried and true, tried and proven on Broadway. My father and uncle started off as rock and roll songwriters in the 1950s, and uh, and then in the 60s they got this dream job of working for Walt Disney as staff songwriters They were given a weekly paycheck. I mean, you know, for a songwriter that's unheard of. Yeah. And um, and uh, on Broadway, on the West End, or or even in Hollywood, and but my dad and uncle had this wonderful job, and so there was there was a tremendous sense of security when I was small. Not when I got older, because all of that dried up and evaporated by 1980. Um, but it was uh, but when I was small, my dad was the king of this realm, and it was a realm of music that a small child would love and identify with. Yes. So that's why I, I had this connection, and they were at the top of their. The pinnacle of their careers, and you know they were nominated nine times for Oscars, having won twice for Mary Poppins, and then then their other films of theirs were Chitty, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Jungle Book, all the Winnie the Pooh movies. I mean, you know, this is massive stuff, uh, and you know stood the test of time as well.
0: Did you did you always love what they were doing? Did you always love love the music they were writing? Yes. I mean, you know, you, you get yes. some 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 kids that will just sort of rebel against what their parents are doing. Oh, that's not cool, you know. But my my goodness, you know, they're they're writing music. they they're they're writing music then, which is still popular just just as much now.
1: The coolest thing in the world was what my dad did for a living. That I could tell people that my father was a songwriter. I knew that that had a a. a a ma- magical or a mystical quality to it, it because it's saying your father's a poet. And, and the truth is, you know, people oftentimes tell the story of, of, uh, you know, what was your child's like, you know, and they tell, you expect something idyllic and then they said, Oh, no, it was terrible. There was this awful thing going on. I have to say for the most part, for the most part, it was what you would hope it would be. It was my dad had the spirit of a poet and was a natural poet. And um, so, so yeah, there was definitely a a, uh, a, a delicate kind of a quality to my childhood and and the way that that you know there was an there was an indulgence. Now there's a dark side to all of that, of course, but it's not, I would certainly say that the light outweighed the dark. Uh, you know, there's there's an aspect of being spoiled and being a, a little bit not reality based. There was a point when. I remember we were on a family vacation once and my father didn't write his own checks and, and we had a crooked accountant at the time. And, um, and, the, uh, and the accountant said, and the accountant called up my dad and said, you have to finish this trip today because you can't afford it. And this is in my dad's heyday. I remember it was actually traumatic. So traumatic, I remember it from five years old because we were in this beautiful palatial suite in Hawaii and suddenly we get a phone call and they had to send us home because every night we were there was so expensive. It was cheaper to just fly home. And there was, there was no way to pay for this thing. And so we had to, uh, we had to do it. And, and it was a very, it was a very strange uh, weekend. I remember going back because we had to, we had to go on, uh, you know, different flights and it was, it was a little bit like being a refugee going back. It was a very strange experience. So there were, like I say, it's nothing that, I would say traumatized me in, in the classical sense, but it made me acutely aware that money was a real thing and it was a tangible thing. And if it was gone, you'd notice it. Yeah. Which, I, If I had gone through that, I, I'm telling you, it would have been, and I grew up in Beverly Hills. So I, I know people who never went through that. And, and I knew, I knew tons of child, child stars when I was growing up. Um, and, and it's, it's absolutely amazing to think, about how deluded they were and how, what a, a crime is a big word, uh, probably too big a word to use, but it was a, they, there was a delusion that didn't serve them well, for sure.
0: Yeah. It, I, I have this vision of, mm-hmm. uh, of of your family home being full of amazing, you know, Disney music, you know, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and knobs and um, obviously Mary Poppins' Jungle Book and all these amazing, amazing scores. Um, yeah. It, been a very happy place. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must be like.
1: It was wonderful. It was, I'll tell you, the thing that people said about my family's house, you know, it's this big palatial Beverly Hills estate, and it was a big one. I mean, it was uh, three quarters of an acre, uh, which, which you know, is pretty big in a, in a suburban, you know, part of a sort of inside the middle of the city. You know, you wouldn't get this kind of space in London, for sure, unless you had a 20 million pound flat, uh, you know. Something, something ridiculous uh, th- that no one in our business today can afford except maybe e. Wood Weber. Um, but, uh, it's a, uh, I, I certainly don't have that kind of a uh, flat, but it's, uh, um, fine, but it's, it's not, not, not what I grew up with. And it was, uh, but it was, it was massive. Also land is cheaper there. And, uh, it was and there was there was music going my father listened to a lot of dixieland and and ragtime he loved music he loved loved uh, paint he was a painter as well wonderful painter he poured out uh creativity uh and and was never one of the things he one great thing to learn from from him you know he didn't get involved in politics of uh too much you know i mean i don't mean politics of uh, uh trump versus clinton i mean the politics of uh of the music business too much. He didn't. He didn't go to a lot of parties. He didn't. And, and there's a downside to that. You know, you pay for that because then you don't have the connections. I mean, there is that practical side of the business. But he didn't believe. He didn't. Um, and from my point of view, it was very difficult because my mom said, Why don't you bring him to meet why don't you bring Robbie to meet a publisher too? And I remember that my dad brought me to meet one publisher when I was maybe 21 years old or so. And 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 he was the last publisher in Los Angeles, music publisher, who had a piano in his office. Huh. He was an old man, his son was running the company now, and you know, it was just an emeritus thing because my dad didn't need to go to publishers and people came to him for a song or for or for a movie. And so he wasn't that well connected, you know. It was uh, he kind of lost. So, so I just, you know, there was not, none of that. Those sort of shoulders. Now he had the shoulders to climb on with my, with you know, from a political point of view, that my grandfather had because my grandfather knew everybody and played the games. And like most, like 99% of songwriters, 99.9% of songwriters, he he, um, he had to work the system. He had to, you know, he didn't have a paycheck coming in every week. Um, my dad didn't have that problem so yes my my childhood there was truly an ideal kind of a poet's world my dad was he never got cross he just sort of he, he lived he lived by sort of a poet's creed
0: yeah yeah amazing and and of course i'm going to ask the question did you meet the did you meet the man did you meet Walt?
1: That would have been difficult because uh, Walt died 18 months before I was born. Oh, okay. But, uh, and that would have that would have been traumatic. Actually, <laughs> I think. That's, that's one of the best. Can you, ma- can you imagine Walt Disney? Can you imagine my dad saying, "I want Robbie. I know you're young, but I want you to meet somebody who's very important." <laughs> that's one of the best questions I've ever asked. <laughs> <laughs> can you could you imagine that that, that thing? Says, yeah, I met him. I don't want to talk about it. That's the next question. <laughs> <laughs> His hair was falling out. No, no, no. Don't, 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 don't put that in. Oh, dear.
0: Uh, did did things change? Did things change for your for your dad and for your for your family life when when Walt Disney died? I mean, did was there an effect? Was there a big change? Well,
1: yes, and it was it was an interesting it's an interesting effect that happened. uh Now, of course, remember I wasn't alive when Walt Disney actually died, and my dad and because you know film especially an animated film but a musical as well is at minimum a three-year process because you write the thing let's say everything's going well and deals are happening and fast and you know you're not waiting around for five years to get a meeting uh which sadly is a lot of the reality in these things but let's say it's going really really fast and ducks are in order you spend let's say 1966 writing a thing 67 filming it 68 it's released So it's a three, there's a three year process there at absolute minimum. And usually it's closer to five. So my dad was still the beneficiary of all these Disney things. The regularity of Disney (laughs) was still the beneficiary of the, of the regularity of Disney uh, films coming through and, 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 and being released. And, and then of course, one of the great gifts Walt Disney gave my dad, you See, he, he was like a second father to my dad and uncle, uh, really treated them well and was out for their best interest, not just the studios. He, uh, he didn't have to let them go for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which of course is not a Disney film. Yeah. And he, let them, he yeah. let them have that. And that was a godsend because Disney films were not what they were when, Disney, when Walt was alive and uh the, yeah, the production that's, that's
0: what my question was based on it, it things things change when you know the person at the the core you know um passes on oh, and, and that's, i mean all
1: you have to do is look at the products that came out afterwards yeah. you know but it wasn't the same yeah yeah there were some great moments there were some great things that that uh you know great moments and things but i mean you can I don't think you could look at anything that certainly that my father and uncle did, some of the brilliant work that my father and uncle did um, post-Waltz that didn't have, and I'm talking about, because, I mean, you take the short movie, for example, Winnie the Pooh and the Bluff Street Day, which came out in 1968. I don't consider that to be post-Waltz, even though Waltz died in 66. Yeah. Yep. because that's that's still very much i mean he would have been involved with the storyboards and he would have been he would have said no not this song this song or no we need to have a moment here or no let's let's not do that at length and you know he would have he would have been watching over it yep. largely and also his team was yep. there one of the problems again is it was the politics at disney the the uh if you use another lion king uh uh analogy it was kind of like the hyena's came in to rule after, after Walt died and, and not the most, not necessarily the best talented people got uh, to be in charge of the place. And um, that was problematic. And uh, the proof is in the pudding. Just look at the movies that came out in the 1970s versus the films that came out in the 1960s category for category. If it was a nature film, it wasn't as good. I don't know if they did nature films in the seventies, but if it was, you know, a teenage You know, an innocent thing if it was, uh, you know, Freaky Friday, the film was not the film that the parent trap was. It didn't have the social significance that the parent trap had. It didn't have the uh, it didn't have the heart that the parent trap had. And it didn't have the Sherman Brothers. That's for sure. So, you know, and and, um, that's just one film. And I don't mean to put one thing down for another thing. But I mean, I think that I think it's evidence and especially historically now it's evident that, um, that that's the case.
0: Did you, um, now, uh, you obviously, you went to, to Disney World. You went to Walt Disney World, obviously, because your, your your father and uncle had had written some music for some of the rides there. What was that like? Yep. That really, really surreal, going into this amazing magical world and then hearing, uh, on, a, on, a, on a theme park ride, and then hearing hearing your, your, your dad's work.
1: Well, I'll tell you the big one is, is when you go, not to Walt Disney World, which is in Florida, but to Disneyland, in the original one in Anaheim, yeah. where they have it's a small world and it's this map have you been there yeah this yeah, is yeah. the one in LA. when you go to that one in la and you see and, and you walk up to the it's a small world it's like the whole park leads especially in those days before they had Toontown town and other things around there but even even with it it's like you walk through the entire park and the culmination of the park where you finally finishes at this shrine that's named after my father's song and and this magnificent ode to the children of the world and to peace on earth called it the small world after all and and you know the ride really begins the experience begins you know 20 minutes before you ever get there because because it's as you're even if it's a, you know as you're walk even if you're walking straight to it you walk there and you walk and you see it gets bigger and it's bright this bright white and it's just a magnificent uh, beautiful message and and I, I'm convinced that that is one of, that's easily one of his greatest works. It's the most, it's on record as being the most performed song on earth. <laughs> wow. Well, and think about it, it's played in like five or six different Disney worlds around the earth, you know, not 24-7, but 16 hours of the day, which means it's playing somewhere yeah. every minute of every day since Certainly since nineteen eighty three when they opened up Tokyo Disney of yep. uh, Disneyland. But but they opened the ride in sixty-six. So it's been over fifty years. And the first time the ride came was in nineteen sixty-four. And it's an, and it's a real message. You know, a lot of people squander their platform. You know, you get a platform maybe for a few years if you're lucky, really lucky, and you know, billions of people, you know, uh, you know, get to see what you're doing, but then you're your 15 minutes is up, and you go back. What did you do with that plot? Did you sing Ooh, "Baby, Baby," or did you say something that maybe made a subtle point that 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 sort of reinforced something that we need to do to, that we need to be to be better human beings? And it's a small world, there's just such thing. You know, nobody's ever written a world anthem, and certainly not a world anthem prior to this. Certainly not a world anthem that that specifically said to the listener, look, it's, there's so much that we share. It's time. We're aware it's a small world after all. My dad always said there was a silent lyric that's not written in that song. That is really the point. And you have to understand the context of the time. This was written for the 1964 World's Fair. It was written in early, early 1963, right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And... um, And so the whole point was is that we almost came to the brink of destruction. And Walt Disney Disney, uh, said, look, he had this ride. Uh, It was called Children of the World originally. And he had this mock-up. And they were all singing their own national anthems. And Walt Disney walked them through this mock-up, which is maybe an eighth of the size. You know, it's very small relative to the actual ride. And he said, you can't understand anything. It's a cacophony. We need one song. And he said, "Arondale." My dad and uncle understood he meant around, uh, not, not a mm-hmm. And uh, and and that and that was the song that they wrote. But my dad's silent lyric—the lyric that's not written—is so. And the lyric goes, "There's so much that we share that it's time we're aware. It's a small world after all, so let's not blow it up." <laughs> True. I it that's sounds pretty, funny, but it, it, you yeah. know, I mean, we're in a we're in a time right now. You know, where there's so yeah. much that we share with. With yeah. the North Koreans, yeah. don't you think it's time we're aware? We, you know, it's a small world after all. Look, small world. You, you drop bombs, places nuclear bombs. There's going to be fallout. Yeah. What a great message! To, if you're going to brainwash children, which <laughs> probably isn't the nicest thing to do. Um, what a good thing to brainwash them with. So you know, you you spent thirty forty minutes walking up to the ride going into the ride, going onto to this boat ride, relaxed, you're open, you watch this thing, beautiful music coming into your ears, you see these beautiful dolls dancing around with the colors and, and, and the culture, very multicultural, all these different, Spanish and guitars, Flamenco, and Iraq with the flying carpets, and of course Baghdad, and then you go to this country and that country, and then at the very end of the ride in this big room, and they're all still of their own ethnicity, the only difference is that they're all wearing white. It, I mean, it's it's such an exquisite message for yeah. peace, and it's not heavy-handed at all. I mean, it's so unheavy-handed that people think it's simple, and that was my dad's goal. That was his. That was his style. Was not to impress you with how clever he was. He wanted to actually get. So he used his platform in a way that was so sophisticated and such a masterful method that it's. uh I mean, I'm, I'm constantly awed by some of the things that, that he does because, as you know, I'm doing this show, Spoonful of Sherman, and I, I look at different songs we can use, and, and, I, and then when you sit there and you type out the lyrics for the script and you think, wow, wow, how, wow what a, an, an original thought, what an original way to say something, what, a, what an original thing to say.
0: Yeah, I, and, uh, I I first I first uh, went to Disney in 1990. I went to, to Disney World. I've I've since been to Disneyland Paris and and to Disneyland. Very fortunate and have I
1: know it's very important to you that you and you both you and your wife.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I have, we have two young children and Disney's always played a very very strong part in my life and my my uh, musical inspirations, I suppose. Um, and I I that ride, uh, it's a world was the ride that stayed with me from day one and i can still remember going on it for the very first time you know 20 odd years ago um and uh, it, it is it's it's an amazing it is an amazing experience i think i think you either love it or hate it because that song can drive people nuts <laughs> but you never forget it and i yeah. i love it i mean i i absolutely loved it loved it and my my so do my kids and it's interesting you now you you, you mentioned a spoonful of show and i was going to go on to that um tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write that because that's all about bringing the the all the family's music together, from your grandfather to your father and your uncle, and and obviously to yourself. We'll talk about talk about your songwriting um, later as well. So in
1: 1983, the Sherman brothers, uh, very close friend for decades and decades, was a fellow named Milt Larson. Milt Larson's kind of a legend in Los Angeles, he uh, opened up the Variety Arts Center and also the Magic Castle for people who are interested in magic, the, the equivalent of the Magic Circle here. Actually, more than the equivalent, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the grandfather of it. And uh, so, like I say, he's a legend in the magic world and, and variety uh, entertainment world. And um, Milt had a show, and it was Act One was my grandfather's music. When I was a kid myself in those days. Uh, and I remember seeing act one was my grandfather's music and act two was my dad and uncle's music and I thought wouldn't it be great one day because I knew I wanted to be a songwriter. I already was a songwriter by that point, but a young teenager, uh, so I wasn't uh, quite in the profession aspect of songwriting yet. And uh, and uh, wouldn't it be great one day if there was, you know, if I was part of that show. So that was always in the background. That was always a seed level kind of a, an aspiration. And then I started doing some work with um, with uh, Colin Billing, who you must know, um, the you know music director. You, you know Colin, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Colin said to me, Colin said, you know, I would love to do a show about the Sherman family. And, uh, you know, we could do something. You could be it. You could be part of the show and be the narrator and be the thing. We talked about it. Uh, you and I talked about doing a show, a uh, Sherman show as well. Uh, Russell, I remember we talked about because you were doing the composer' series of, of shows, but it, you know you 're doing your own thing and you get busy and sudden. sadly, my father passed away in two thousand and twelve, and I was working with Colin on a show of mine uh, uh, just a workshop of, of my show bumble scratch and uh, and uh, and then we were releasing my fa- uh, the estate was releasing my father 's book, which I was the editor of and It was a shame. It was the great last work of my father's life. The last decade of his life was this book called Moose. It was a nickname of his, And uh, Moose chapters from my life. And we needed to do a UK, um, uh, UK book launch of some sort. We didn't need to, but we wanted to. Then I thought, you know. It's, people are going to come. They're going to think my dad's still alive, some of them. They're going to be very disappointed. We'll have a book signing. My name is Robert Sherman. My dad's name was Robert Sherman. People think that I'm trying to pass myself off as you know, books. I say, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we have books available, and we'll do this show around my father's life? So really, it wasn't even so much about the family as it was about my father, the songs, the music that surrounded my father's life. And that became the opportunity to do it. And it was only going to be two nights. But, my God, what a two nights. And it, became, it grew to have a life of its own, partly because it followed up on that movie, Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, it was the next month. It was in the, the, the month following uh, the release of that Disney movie about the making of Mary Poppins. And so we got the London Times came in. They gave us four stars. I mean, you know, for, for a cabaret show it was kind of unheard of yeah. and uh and we got a lot of other four-star and five-star and one or two three-star reviews and uh but it was really really well received and the fact that it had an audience at all so so uh james albrecht over at the, the one saint james now the uh the other palace said we want you back so we came we came back 2017 the zadel um uh, James is now working at the Zaydel, and he wants us wanted us back. and uh, uh, pretty soon we're going to be making a very big announcement
0: uh, as well. So tell me about about Bumble Scratch. How did that all come about? How long had you been working on Bumble Scratch? Bumble Scratch was a labor of
1: love, but it was a long labor of love. You know uh, my day job, when after my mother passed away in two thousand and one, my day job had become uh, basically managing my dad's office. And um, which, and and also you know also personal managing my dad. I'd done some of that in the 1990s as well, but but it went into overdrive when my dad, uh, when my mother passed away, and and that became my day job and you know salaried and position and all of that. And it was, um, uh, and so what I would do in my off time, you know, I'm a songwriter. I want to get things moving along, is I would write. So between 2004 and 2008. It's a long time, it's the longest I've ever spent on one show, uh, you know, writing, uh, you know, writing songs. It's four years, but in between I was doing an animation film. We were doing the animatic storyboard reel for, for an animation film that had my dad's songs and my script with my dad, um, which is yet to see the light of day, but hopefully one day. And um, so when I wasn't doing that project, I was doing uh, called Incis, Um I was doing Bumble Scratch. I was writing Bumble Scratch. And that's the thing I love to do. I, I love to write songs. I love lyrics and uh and music. And that's that's really you know what I'm best at. And um and then of course we uh just the transcription of it all was uh you know months of work. And then we did dem- then I did some demos, just piano vocal demos because it's a sung through musical, so it's very very detailed. And then we and then we um did the workshop in twenty late twenty twelve no no twenty thirteen. Twenty fourteen was about spoonful. Twenty fifteen, uh, I was working on another couple shows and then twenty sixteen we did um, we did this big one night gala because it was the cell it was the three hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Great Fire of London. So in twenty sixteen we and, and my show, Bumble Scratch, is about a pig rat. Who lives in the time of uh, the Great Fire, and so it's the Great Plague and the Great Fire, and it's sort of told from his uh, somewhat twisted perspective. It's comedy, dark comedy, and uh, that's how Bumble Scratch was. That's that's the history thus far.
0: And what about what about new work? Are you working on any on any new new works at the moment? Any new 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 productions? Well,
1: the 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 thing I'm working on right now is what we were discussing off record. Uh, the so and and my dad has my dad gave me a rule of thumb. He said writers either are working on a project or they're talking about a project so he he told me, and I didn't always follow this advice, but I've tried to in the last uh, eight years, partly from the bumble scratch experience of always talking about the project I was writing and um and so i don't I don't generally t- as a rule and I don't mean to be antisocial, I just don't like to talk about the things
0: that. Are, that I'm currently working on, so oh, it's I, uh, that's perfectly, yeah. perfectly acceptable. I think I think a lot of us feel that way. We don't like to. Um, it's superstition,
1: and but I mean, it's somehow it comes true. I mean, there's there's something to the. Uh, it's not because I'm afraid that somebody's going to steal the idea or. so no, you just so much. To, Yeah, yeah to, just a little of that,
0: but. fate. I get it.
1: <laughs> and I, and it's I. It's just you, you talk about it, then you don't have the energy to to focus on the actual creation of the thing. Yeah. Um, and that's true with any project, you know, it could be, it could be, uh, one of the, you know, like one of the composer series that you're doing, if you're just talking about, now, granted, you have to sell the thing, but it's sort of a, you know, you, you, there's a, there's a point where of, where a thing needs to be, uh, in sabbatical, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the seed needs to be underneath the earth, yeah. away from our sight, away from discussion, and it's doing some sort of mystical, magical thing. Not being discussed, but just you know underneath the surface, and then when it starts to sprout, then you can start talking about it. and And that's kind of my philosophy with with regard to new projects. But yes, to answer your question, there are several new projects completely new that uh, I'm very excited about. and And if I had my if I didn't have to do uh, uh, some of the business on other things, I would be spending all my time on those yeah
0: um you, you spoke you spoke very briefly about your mum um i'm sort of going back now to the family side of things um what your your mum and your and your siblings must have must have ended up taking a bit of a backseat in all of this it sounds like you and your your dad and your uncle were sort of the sort of main the main players oh no not at all uh i mean what in what sense i mean as
1: creatives or are you talking about in in family life
0: yeah i suppose, i suppose in 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 terms of the in terms of writing, in terms of writing and creation, but I, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure as a family, family life, I'm, I'm sure it sounded like it was a, it was a very close family and a very close knit environment. Well, sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, the uh, I, I would put it this way: I mean, everybody has their strengths in my family. Uh, not everybody went into songwriting. Uh, my brother, for his for for his uh, work, has done some tremendous things. He did a documentary about my father and uncle, along with my cousin Greg. Um, he was my brother was also Jeff was also a writer on TV. He, he uh, for a very big TV show that kids today still know about and watch on reruns uh, called Boy Meets World. Um, and he's done some other some done some other things. I mean, I can tell you if you were sitting at a family get together. And we had family guests. It was my brother who, who my my mother would very proudly point to my brother and say, "Now, Jeff, tell tell everybody what you're up to." And the rest of us were silent. I mean, I, I was very quiet in those. Well, I remember I was eleven years younger than he was too. Right. But it, Jeff was the gold. Jeff was the golden child. There's no question about that. Uh, I don't. I don't think you'd even get disagreement amongst us four on that point. Um, you know, uh, because I mean, it just was it just was glaringly obvious thing uh but it was uh and 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 he was and he was in the creative business now as and he wrote songs by the way but i wouldn't say that he is a songwriter i think that i mean his his real i mean he's a songwriter i don't mean to but but it's not his focus i I guess is the best way to phrase that yeah
0: yeah you you um you get to see much of them now, I and mean, you're, you're now you, you you came to London and you you moved to London permanently. When when did that all happen, and how did that sort of affect affect the running of the life? Why did you end end up doing it all from London rather than LA, for example?
1: Well, maybe one of the great stealthy gifts of my father uh, that I live in London now. Um, it was uh, 2001. My mother passed away. And yeah, that was very much uh, an earth-shaking thing in our family. She was kind of the center point. Uh, yeah, the idea that my mother was at all the backseat of our family would would be an incorrect notion to leave you with. Um, the house ran around my mother, and and, uh, and she was she was very much very much governed it. Uh, what you know, what happened there. But it was um, uh, when she passed away my dad needed a change i mean it was uh, it was a very difficult time for him and for the whole family and uh so we had the opening thank god of chitty chitty bang bang as a stage musical and my, as my dad very eloquently puts in his book uh, that i was telling you about before moose chapters from my life his autobiography uh he said that he, he pointed out that chitty chitty bang bang saved sort of saved him from the abyss twice both after Walt Disney passed away because here was this massive movie and this big success outside of Disney and it gave him a life outside of Disney and all the movies that would follow that were non-Disney films, musicals uh, over the next decade and a half. That was, uh, that was because of Chitty. And the same thing was true uh, with the stage musical because remember it was 2001, the same time my mother passed away, we also had 9-11 Six months after Chitty, after nine eleven, after my mother passed away, it was within a month, of the, the two events were within a month of each other, we came to London, my dad and I, for the rehearsals, and then we came back to L.A. Here my dad was wanted in London. L.A., it was kind of, you know, he didn't know what to do with himself. Then we come back to London, and it was vibrant and alive with theater and music, and, and then we come back, and in there was even some paparazzi not tons but a little bit outside of our building and you know and wanting to see him and then we'd go back to LA and it was great and finally on the last trip um we had uh celebrated um we'd celebrated Father's Day with two of the families of the children from um Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. They had been on the record the the CD uh uh the very famous, now very famous Fletcher family, who have, of course, uh, Tom Fletcher and Carrie Fletcher. And, um, and they were with us. And then and then there was uh, the, the Gillies family. Who, and they were they played the little boy and the little girl, uh, George Gillies and Carrie Fletcher, um, from Chitty and the Stage Musical. They were one of the casts. And we had Father's Day. And I remember Bob Fletcher, uh, Carrie and Tom's dad, came to me on the last day of our trip, our last trip scheduled to London what would you think if your dad moved to London? i say, I think it would be a prayer answer because I didn't know what to do with him when we got back to LA. And I'm serious. It was like walking off of a cliff. I really didn't know what, what how his health would be. I didn't know how he would, and London was great for him. And so a month and a half later, I think we moved, it was June, uh, no, July. That's right. July 24th. We moved to London, uh, in 2002. And, uh, and we, uh, yeah, 2002, and we we basically been here. Uh, what I didn't realize is that I was moving here, too. I, I kind of figured I'd be very jet-set, and I am, but I, I thought my majority of time would be spent in L.A. But the reason I say it's such a gift, and it really was the great gift of my of my dad's, it was the fact that L.A. is not a place to bring up a musical. And I, as my L.A. friends who are in the business get upset with me for saying this, but I stand by it. Musical, um, if I could go back in time to 1980 in a time machine and give one piece of business advice to my dad, I'd say, um, you need to pack up, and move to London because there are two, because there's this young guy named Cameron McIntosh, a young composer, and Wood Weber, they're doing big things and it's becoming the hub or move to New York. But L, but LA is not a place. They're not making any more musical films except once every three years. Yeah. and. um it's not a business anymore. Now, in the time, you wouldn't have known it. You would have thought, "Oh well, that's the thing." So that's why it's such a gift. Because here I am, I'm finally able to do the thing that I wanted to do my whole life. And if I, you know, it's hard to move cities, uh, and especially if you it's a big city, you know. Um, anyways, so that's that's the reason I'm. Uh, that's the reason I consider it such a gift.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's good to have you around, and there's you know there's some really great stuff you're doing. Um, and you know, what's what's wonderful, about, what's wonderful about all this is is just that you're continuing your father's legacy and your uncle's legacy, and and letting that you know the music that music will never die, it will never go. But what you're doing is no, I don't think you're you're keeping it alive, and you're keeping it live in the sense that it's not just something that happened. 40, 50 years ago and beyond, you're keeping it alive and making it something that's still current. And that's, uh, that's, that's really admirable. You know, um, it's, it's great. And it's, it's, well,
1: I, I think, I mean, you know, it, it's a funny thing. I, I don't think there's much I can do that Disney can't do in a second. And with a lot greater ease and, And plum and expertise, uh, you know, as far as promoting those things. What I like to promote of my dad's are the things you never, you know, that that aren't aren't necessarily Disney, for the simple reason that there's nobody out there necessarily doing the Slipper and the Rose, or or, uh, or I mean, Chitty has a pretty good representative base. Um, You know, there's Charlotte's Web, there's there's all these other things. But the thing my dad really wanted for me would not, and my mother as well, would not have wanted me to have lived sort of in the past of that, but to continue forward. I mean, that really was always, that was, you know, that, that's where that's the future is much more exciting to me, at least than the past can be because the past, I mean, that's what we need. We need more musical, fresh, new musical theater. I mean, that's, that's the great thing to give the world. So that's what I'm really trying to spend as much energy as I can while I can, you know?
0: Just one one final question. What of all of your father and un- and your uncle's works which was which was your favorite?
1: Oh gosh, if you'd asked my dad that question, he would have found it very difficult to answer it uh, as well. He would say it's like all my children, you know, who pick one. you know uh, it's hard to pick a child. It's hard to pick your your best your greatest work. I mean, and favorite as a difficult. Word as well because I mean certainly as a single piece of not just writing but producing and directing and acting and singing and and art direction and everything that went into it. Mary Poppins has a particular uh, stellar place, but so does The Jungle Book, and so does uh, all the all the Winnie the Poohs. I mentioned. Uh, the movie that got me interested in animation, which was Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day, but then you have you have you have slightly slightly less known things like bed and broomsticks my dad's version of tom sawyer is easily the best bit of mark twain that's been musicalized easily one
0: my, I mean, that's it, one of my all-time favorites i i absolutely love tom sawyer and the other one is slipper and the rose you know you know we've spoken about both of those 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 works i i, I think they're just yeah amazing childhood
1: yeah people. i mean they're, they're, they're magnificent uh they're just magnificent pieces uh and and charlotte's web that's i mean some of the most gorgeous songs that my dad and uncle ever wrote
0: so what, what influenced you? I mean, I, I said that was the last question, but it's not. I've got a couple of other questions. What, what, what influenced you to, to, to get to what you're doing now?
1: Well, obviously, my father and uncle um, were very important influences to me. My grandfather, I'm a big Beatles fan. Uh, there are lots of classical and opera composers, uh, you know, usual suspects, I guess. Bach, Mozart, Debussy, Chopin. Uh, I take a guilty pleasure in Wagner. Uh, I, I love marching band music. I was in a marching band myself. John Philip Sousa, Barbershop Quartet, anything from that period. Scott Joplin. Uh, but show writers. I'm sorry. What's up? Do you want me to continue with the, uh, some of my show people because yeah, I didn't I,
0: really I, go. I didn't. I didn't say anything. You said show writers and then oh, you.
1: Said... <laughs> okay. Uh, different show writers would be I don't know R and H uh, Hammerstein, uh, Hart as well Kern, Harbaugh, GNS. Lerner and Lowe, Frank Sinatra, Gershwin's Cole Porter, later on Harnick and Bach, uh, Sondheim, Backrack and David, Lloyd Webber, less influenced by the new school writers, I suppose. But that doesn't mean I don't respect what they do, because I do. Um, and it's just, not, it's, it's just not really what I do, that's all. It's not my school. So Jason Robert Brown, who stole two of my names, because I'm Robert Jason Sherman, um, Michael uh, John... Uh, La Cusa, I always say his name wrong, but you know, uh, who did the wild party, uh, Adam Gattel, Williamson, Andrew Lippa, that sort of writer and writing. I'm very much an old school writer though. And, um, I would say that my approach is categorically old school. Most people don't know how to distinguish between old school and new school writers. and They think they don't make the right decision. but there is very much an old school versus a new school. And I do think it's something people should be educated in. Mm. Um,
0: if you if you could uh, if you could change anything now if you if you could look back at your life and you could change anything would you change anything or would you do you think you had the kind of perfect upbringing and the sort of perfect entry into the world of songwriting well i
1: definitely have regrets uh, there's definitely things i would do would have done differently however where i am now is diff- wouldn't i couldn't obviously i couldn't be who i am if i hadn't gone through the experiences of um, of what I'd gone through. Uh, but that said, if in, if I were to change one thing, in my early 20s, I would have been braver. And I would have been not... See, one of the things, I was very proud. I, I didn't want to take money from my parents. I wanted to have a normal job. I worked as a delivery boy uh, in my 20s. I worked construction sites and things like that. Um, I did everything in construction. and my And I was in big credit card debt for... 22 year old, you know, 23 year old just out of college. I, I bought some furniture and it just kept on mounting because I had no way to pay even off the minimums, Well, I could pay the minimums. That was about it. And I kept on, you know, my mom offered to wipe, well, clean my debt. I just didn't want to do it that way. I felt that that was, uh, like I, I, as I mentioned before, I had this history with, um, with the idea of the value of money and, and sort of in that sense. And, uh, But what I should have done is I should have let her do that. I should have made very clear that I was going to be more sensible about putting things on credit cards and let her take care of that. And I should have gone to New York and I should have gotten into Broadway theater things because, you know, my dad was still very active in the 1990s. And I could have utilized those connections in a way that would have been much better. And so the reason I mention all this, and I'm glad you asked me this question. Is because if there are young people listening to this, I would say you've got to use your advantages. Whatever, don't be ashamed of whatever advantage you have. If you were fortunate enough to have a little bit of money, for whatever reason, or you have better connections, believe me, there are re- there are things that that you have to pay for because of that. Uh, if you have a great, if you're if you're really good looking, I'm not saying to do anything immoral. Uh, and by the way, I, I, especially for writers, I, I don't. I don't subscribe to it. I think it steals a piece of your soul when you do that. And I don't mean that it sounds, that's kind of a metaphorical sounding or mystical sounding thing, but I do think that it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's problematic because as a writer you lose contact with, with your ability to truly communicate the, the inner person because, because you, you damaged that inner person and, and you've created a complex like complication there, and and so people who do compromise themselves um, in some moral way, uh, and I'm not passing judgment on people because people have different morals. But if you do some, if you do something, well, you know, I got to do this because it's the business. Uh, that's it makes for definitely makes for worse writers, and I've seen this happen with really with writers who start off writing great stuff, and then they end up writing stuff that has no soul to it. It has no no, no heart or no soul to it. And uh, and I imagine that this is probably true with some actors as well, uh, that they lose a piece of themselves, and it's just, they become disconnected. So, uh, so I would say, use your advantages, but don't, but do it with balance. Um, if you're good-looking, there's no reason not to use that to your advantage. Obviously, don't Go. Don't use it in an immoral way, though. That's all. Yeah, and it's uh, a great bit of advice, et etc. And I can give you every example.
0: You know, you, know, you, you true tell me. be true to yourself. I think is, is what you're saying is, is just be real and, and take advantage of your opportunities. I think that's that's really really great advice.
1: Yeah, take, yeah definitely take advantage of opportunities and don't squander your youth because youth is a, is truly a commodity and time is the only thing we never get back or any more of. And um, and and youth and people, I mean, in Hollywood they worship youth. I can tell you that. And being old is is a, the cardinal sin. So you know, this is why you see all this awful plastic surgery and and what have you in L.A. Um, I mean, you know, gone muck uh, These the TV shows. I, I'm shocked when I go back there. How much how, how rampant it is. And you know, you sit in a cafe and people walking in with uh, styrofoam noses and.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well we've it's <laughs> a good time to end we've got we've come to the end of the show i uh, robbie i'd like to just thank you so much for your time today and sharing these amazing stories and and your passions and your history and and your inspirations and and uh, it's it's wonderful and uh, and thank you so much
1: russell you do great work and i've always admired the things that i've seen of yours and if you ever if there's ever anything i can do with you or for you uh, please you know
0: Uh, don't hesitate to call. I really appreciate that. Thank you very, very much indeed. Well, that's it for today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Don't forget to check out the website at www.alifeinmusic.com. Subscribe to the podcast and please continue to spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget, be your very best.